0: Welcome to Off Code, the show where we ignore the cultural codes and have real and intriguing conversations regarding the Black community and ways we can move forward to human flourishing.
1: Hello and welcome to another episode of Off Code. I am Monique Dusan.
0: And I am Kevin Briggins. And this episode right here is like full circle because this was supposed to be the very first episode of Off Code. So I'm really excited about our guest today.
1: Yes, I cannot wait to dig in and have a conversation. Um, Today's guest is Pastor Alton Hardy. He is the pastor at Urban Hope Community Church in Fairfield, Alabama, which is um, like a subset or a subdivision of Birmingham and um, yeah, we will let him tell you about the area and all of that. But today's focus is on discipleship, especially in the urban context, discipleship um, in the black community. What does that look like and what are some of the, the specific issues and struggles that we see when doing discipleship? I was just chatting with Pastor Alton um, about. You know, some of those struggles, I think that this is an important topic to talk about because one, discipleship is hard everywhere. Like, you know, one of the, the comments that we talk about or um, one of the topics we talk about is discipleship overall, like discipleship is important. But when you introduce poverty and all of the issues that come along with poverty, that can make discipleship in those areas an extremely unique endeavor, but Pastor Alton is doing his thing and um, it's exciting to, to see. I was just at his church, I think a month ago and we got to sit in on a Sunday and just watch all the beautiful people coming in and, um, you know, in an area like Fairfield that is, you know, I would say 99.9% black, um, you know, he's building a very multicultural church absolutely. And the, You know, he yeah, I don't I I could talk about it without him even being on the show. So (laughs) let me stop now um, and let's welcome on Pastor Alton. It's
2: good to be here.
1: Welcome. (laughs) Thanks for joining us.
2: Yes.
0: This has been a long time coming even before this podcast was in existence, before it had a name. You were scheduled to come on.
2: Yes. Y'all had me on y'all radar. (laughs) So I want to let you guys know, I don't do a lot of these. I am very um, um, particular in where I speak in these days for a host of reasons.
0: Yeah. 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 Well, we are honored that you would take the time to speak with us because I believe you have a lot of insight and a lot of um, what I like to call street cred in this area. And um, just the work that you and your church are doing. Um, in the context that you're doing it in, so um, I'm excited to have this discussion. Yes. So, yep. Yeah. So, why don't you kind of, because you know we we talk all the time. So this is going to be like a, just our regular discussions. Uh, so why don't you tell the audience kind of your background, like where you came from, and like and how you got to where you are today?
2: Yes. Uh, long story. We make it quick. I was born outside of Selma, the historic um, civil rights town. Mecca, some would call it. People still go there every year. But I was born in Sardis, a little sharecropping community about 20 miles outside. Grew up my first 12 years outhouse. um, I like to call it entrenched poverty. Didn't know it. um, Eating off the land walking everywhere no light no phone no electricity for the most part and that was my should i say my humble introduction into this world Uh, i grew to hate that part of life for me personally but in god's uh, providence my oldest brother eddie hardy he's no longer here i did his funeral a few years ago Uh, My mother had 12 children by my dad. My dad had more children outside of my mom, but he had 12 with my mom. Ten boys, two girls. Um, Three of us have died, and nine of us still live. I am the nice kid to the last. So there are three after me, Vernon, Charles, and Niles. But at 12, my oldest brother, Eddie, came and got us um, from poor rural Sardis and we moved to Louisville, Kentucky. I like to tell people it was in Louisville that I first had truly interactions with other human beings, (laughs) they were next door. (laughs) Other than that, I never really saw that. Um, That was not a part of my life. And I remember getting teased about my the way I talk. And then I lived in Louisville for about five and a half years uh, my mother had a severe heart attack. She was cleaning houses, trying to take care of about eight, seven to eight kids. We were on welfare, eight housing. Didn't call it that at the time, but it's what it was. But Louisville was really, for me, it was like um, introduction into the whole world. I mean, I, it was modernization, running water. <laughs> um, and so I don't I told somebody this the other day, my wife hates it when I talk like that. I don't ever remember when I lived in Sardis, I knew I must have took baths, but I can't remember. That. <laughs> <laughs> it was it was third world, and, and um and all of this kind of fits into a bigger story, but I would say Sardis, where I call it true spiritual poverty, is how I saw myself, how I viewed the world, and and all of that. But in Louisville, um, God started to kind of break me out of some of that. I I grew up with a Christian worldview. To, for the most part, I heard about God, but there was no discipleship. I know we're going to get into that. It's just Christian language with no um, meat on the bones. You just kind of hear there's a God, there's a hell, there's a devil, but what is all that really means? You, no one really explains it to you. But in Louisville, um, I started going to a church. My mom, out of all the kids at home, I, I never got a chance to ask my mom this, but she would or wake me up you know sunday mornings they make me go to church i don't know if my mom saw something about me that was special with all the other kids they came occasionally but i went almost every sunday and i often tell people the one reason i like to go is the church of god in christ church Newburgh, church of god in christ in louisville i wanted the cookies i wanted the free donuts because I remember in those early days, I was always hungry. We very seldom had a lot of food at the house. And so that was my way of being able to get some sweets. Therefore, my mom had a heart attack. Um, She comes out of the heart attack um, and we're really already was struggling. And so people often ask me, how did you get the Grand Rapids, Michigan? Well, I have a sister named Tony. She resided in um, Grand Rapids at the time. She had a boyfriend there that she had met in Louisville who was from Grand Rapids, Michigan. And so her second child she had with this guy. And so she had relocated to Grand Rapids, Michigan. When my mom came out of this heart attack, she said she had tubes in her nose and she said it was all around. She had the air tank and she said, hey, I can't take care of y'all no more. I'm 15. Um, I'm having probably the best time of my life as a, as a man. I mean, Louisville, I got life, I got friends. It's the coming of age of hip hop. I mean, it couldn't get any better than that. And she says, um, You can either have to go back down south to Selma. And you can imagine, I'm like, Ma, I'm not going back down south. I mean, I'm never going, <laughs> whatever that place called Selma is, I'm never going back there. And so I said, I run away. I'll never forget I lived at my sister Tony. She might have been at the time about 18 or 19. So Tony, can I go live with you? Tony was close to me. And so she lived in Grand Rapids, Michigan, had never really seen snow, had never been north, didn't have a coat, didn't have the attire, didn't have any that. And I left all that I knew in Louisville. And from that time I never lived with my mom again. Uh, I was already fatherless. And so I was now motherless, and I moved in the middle of my 10th grade year to Grand Rapids, Michigan, where I spent 35 years of my life in that city. And so then I started to get teased again with my language because I got teased in Louisville for talking country from Sardis, and then I got to Grand Rapids. It was on a whole another level. <laughs> like, what kind of language is this? So that's where I spent. graduated from high school, went to college, and et cetera. So that's how I got to Grand Rapids, Michigan.
0: Man, that that is an amazing uh, story. I'm very familiar with Selma. So I grew up in Birmingham, but my grandmother's family I have a lot of family in Selma. And every other year we had a family reunion in Selma. Yeah. Right. And uh, being from Birmingham, Selma was different. It was the country. Right. Yeah. It was yeah. just nothing down there. Yeah. not at all. <laughs> um, but no, that that's a great context you laid out for kind of where you started and then kind of this journey you had to that led you to grand rapids michigan yeah all right so you're in grand rapids michigan you are doing ministry (laughs) and there's something about race that kind of starts to pop up can you kind of go into that that element of your story and and just kind of your transformation to how you got the way you are.
2: Yeah, um, it's, it's funny. Um, I remember I went to college up at Alpena Community College, which Alpena restarted their basketball college program and I was a high school basketball player. And I went there, played two years up there, but I ended up spending about three years. Uh, it was not that many blocks up there. I think it was a Air Force Base, if I can't remember in Oscola, um, Michigan, which is about two hours from my And (laughs) I think I'm up there. And so I I like to tell people my story. Um, It was not really until I got to Grand Rapids, man, where this thing called racism, where I started to experience even at college. Um, But it actually started before college. It was in high school. Um, This also happened to me in Louisville as well, walking to school. Um, in fact, before I left Louisville, that I went to Moore Mustangs High School. And right when I got to Louisville, Louisville was just kind of implementing the um, what they call the busing into the di- different districts. And there were all kinds of fights and things of that nature. And I'm just from the South. I'm from the country. I don't know anything about this. We really didn't have those issues in Selma. Not where we lived in Selma because it was just all black anyway. And so I remember in Louisville... A couple of white guys called me over to the car. I was walking home. I may have missed the bus and they spat on me. Mm. I just like I know I mean I think that happened to me a couple of times in Louisville. And then I moved to Grand Rapids and I would walk to school as well. Union High School from where I live was probably about like a 45 minute walk, but I don't know. I've learned to walk because that was my natural way of getting around, being in the South in Sardis. So you just walked everywhere. It wasn't anything abnormal about that. And got spat on a few times walking to Union High School. And because Union High School was a white community right before you got to the school that was notorious for being somewhat, I guess, not really liking blacks, but I'm naive. I don't know any of that. <laughs> and I would always get to call over to a car for some reason. I don't know what it is about walking over the cars and somebody just <laughs> giving, you, giving you their leftovers. And so I had that. And then some of that, um, and in college, there were some racial episodes in my life there. But then coming back from college, man, um it was just like, I was working at a couple jobs. I'm not going to mention those companies, but Um, I was at a beer place. I'll say it was at a beer company. I kind of got in as what they call a scab. They had a teamsters union. Most Michigan companies have unions. It's a very heavy um, union state. And man, I experienced probably, I experienced daily racism, um, woundedness. At one time I started having um, anxiety attacks. I never even knew what that was and I was always a good worker and I was trying to survive because I had to. I didn't have a lot of family support, so either I did it myself or I was just going not to make it. And man, they I was called repeatedly every day the N-word. I mean, just it was just regular. So I remember one time going to the guy, he's dead, and his name was Ray Walling, Dutch guy. I said, hey, Ray, they, they guys keep calling me the N-word. I never forget Ray when I, I was like, if you don't like it, just quit, man. And this is in the <laughs> 80s. Um, but if you, someone probably would say, why come you did run to the NCAA, um, WAPP and all that? I don't know, I didn't think about it. I just like, I gotta work, I gotta do this. And and then I became a driver. Um, but before I became a driver, I tell this story. Uh, one night, there was this guy named Mark. Mark was probably the most notorious one that would, he, Mark was a big, burly white guy. And I was skinny at this time. I'm not 6'4", 300 plus, I'm 6'4", 160 at best high school jumper yeah. type. So I didn't have any of this size that I have now. And Mark um, would always call me the N word. He would always just demoralize me and try to always just intimidate me. But I was fast, I was athletic. And so one night I said, okay, Mark, I'm tired of you calling me the N word, man. And all my names, I should go back to Africa and Ray won't do anything. So we're gonna meet down at the gas station and fight. There was mm-hmm. a gas station down from this warehouse, this beer warehouse and And I'm the only black guy there is no there are no other black people, and it's about fifteen of us. We load the trucks at night for the beer trucks to go out in the morning and so it's about five o'clock in the morning, guys, you know winter night in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Me about eight white guys, and Mark is about three hundred six foot mad pickup truck. I don't like pickup trucks to this day. I never buy a pickup truck because I remember that scene. Mm-hmm. And he pulls up his pickup truck and it's me. And he's calling me to end. I'm going to beat your butt. And I'm going to blah, blah, blah. He's talking crazy. And I'm fast. I lived in Louisville, so I'm trying to be like, oh, late. I'm moving. I'm not going to <laughs> And And this
0: is
2: in the 80s, guys. This is in 1980, um, 1990, 91, somewhere in there. Uh, I think 90. And uh, Mark. Um, he couldn't get a hold of me so he couldn't because I was too fast and I was tagging him you know like because you know I was skinny and I was athletic so he can't get a hold of me and I hit you and I'm just running so he decides to go into the back of his pickup truck to get a chain like probably 12 feet maybe longer and i never forget this and it was this big around I mean it was pretty thick and um and you'll see that in Grand Rapids, Michigan, because of the snow, having to pull people out of the ditches and stuff like that. Yeah. And he gets it, and he takes it over his head like this, carrying him on me. And he's trying to hit me. So he would go high. i go low. He'd go low. i jump. And he would think, why would I just run to my car and leave this? I know now it was God's providence. That chain would have hit me. I would be dead today. He wouldn't be talking to me. And he was literally trying to kill me. And here's the funny thing came back the next day, like it was nothing worked again. (laughs) Hey, (laughs) you just tried to kill me because of the color of my skin. I went to the office and told them about the episode. Once again, they said, if you don't like it, you can quit. Mm. Uh, And I didn't quit, but that was one of my first racial episodes. And then I leave it to the last. And I, I was previously married before. And I had a lot of these events when I worked at this beer company. Then I became a driver and I would go into certain restaurants in Grand Rapids, Michigan, where they would not allow me to come in and say, hey, leave the beer right there. Budweiser Company, you can't come in here. Call me the N word. I call back to the company and say, hey, they won't let me bring the beer in. Beer. I'm bringing you fresh, cold Michelin. I still can't <laughs> come into your, 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 your restaurant. And the company would never really back me up. I was like, "What are you always complaining about race? Man, the guy standing here with a gun telling me I can't come in his restaurant and leave the beer outside. And so they had to send a white guy to bring the beer in versus making that company um, actually do it. Hmm. But then I went to another company and this I'll leave, this will be the last story. But, but while I will say this, while I was on that route, I had many episodes like that where I couldn't go into certain stores because of the color of my skin. Um, But I was a hard worker. I didn't let it bother me. But I think it was. But I just didn't know it was. And then at this last company, which I'll leave nameless, I've talked about it a lot in a lot of podcasts I have done, that people want to know about this race story, where I was probably the most demoralizing I've ever had when it comes to race, where I had a guy stand over me only because I fell on my knees as a Christian and I begged him for my job. And I was crying like a baby, asking him. Um, asking him to um, give me my job, and he just went into a, a epitaph of racial hostility that I've never heard before. I balled up like a baby, and fetal position on the floor, on my knees, just wailing and crying to God, asking him for help, and and that was probably what I can remember as one of the most um, um, excruciating racial. Wonderness that I had experienced, and I was about twenty-five years old, and so I would say that most of my family didn't experience that. But in God's providence for me, I had a lot of racial things that I couldn't explain that God allowed to happen to me for the I get to later for a greater purpose.
1: Man, the the fact that you will call it God's providence for you um, just blows my mind because I think you know there are many people who would just be bitter who would um participate with you know white people from a certain position a position of heart um you know or at arm's length and things like that did it did those experiences create bitterness in you
2: oh most definitely um when i met sandy um i was so um
1: sandy's your wife
2: my wife sandy i was so um I didn't want to talk about race no more. And, and I was working at a different company. I was working at FedEx, FedEx Ground, And I had similar experiences at FedEx Ground with being on the route. I was in a particular white area in outside of Grand Rapids called Holly, Michigan, Zealand, Michigan. And I would not be able to, to leave packages at the door. People was, you know, I was an African-American. They were afraid. It wasn't, it wasn't that many African-Americans in the neighborhood. So a lot of that kind of racial overtones. And even at the job, when black people would get killed, the, the foreman would make jokes about, "Are you sure you wouldn't give your people watermelon? And I was just, I'll come on and tell Sandra about this. She's like, what, they talking to you like that? And this was in the nineties, this is 2000s. And I was like, Hey, I'm just, I'm used to it. I'm just, I got to work a job. I got bills to pay. I can't be worried about all this racial um, condescending stuff that's happening to me. And Sandra was like, what is wrong with you? You gotta, she almost wanted to come up there and give those folks the business. And so I think what had happened to me, Monique and Kevin, I shut down. I just was trying to, um, I don't know, I don't know. I was just numb. I was just like, I'm gonna work, I'm gonna get through life, and then I'm gonna die. That was my that was my model. I didn't wow. I didn't I didn't focus on running to a lawyer or anything like that. That I had just become accustomed to being racially um denigrated in many ways. And I, I think I probably more than accepted it, not knowing mm-hmm. I was accepting it because I didn't deal with it at all. And so I, so I was bitter, and my first son with my ex-wife, his name is Ahmad, and I'll never forget, and I had gone through these racial, um, this is when Public Enemy was out, some of y'all know that, and all those black conscious rap groups, and I was all into that, and I was wearing the dashikis, and man, I had all that stuff on my neck. And i never forget when my son was born, the lady says, white nurse, where are you going to name him?" This is for the internet. I said, Kevin's mommy, I'm not going to give him a white slave master name. <laughs> and so I said, give me a book. And I took a first name book in the alphabet, Ahmad. I thought it was Arabic and not white. And that's how my son got Ahmad Rashad. And so I was in that time. And then by the time I met Sandy, I think I was just trying to, I was just had suppressed it. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I just, it was normalized to me. I didn't want to talk about race no more. I think I was in a hopeless state of any racial healing at that time. It yeah. was just, I, I considered it was just being a part of my life.
1: Would you say that, like with the naming of your son and listening to Public Enemy and Black conscious music and things like that, that you were then taking more of a, um, like a Afrocentric Oh, or like a, oh
2: yeah. Okay, I, I was, I was, that's. I almost became uh, fruit of Islam mm. during this time. I was studying it. I was, I mean, I was a Farrakhan follower. If you don't follow the wow. man, it's probably him me say. <laughs> I was Farrakhan. And back in them days, you know, Farrakhan would come to the universities. He would come to Michigan yeah. State and. And I mean I mean faircon he was like God on earth to us and yeah. so I was into that listening to him ordering the CDs, getting the cassette tapes getting the magazine and um and all of that and so and and probably would have been a um fruit of Islam nations of Islam if it wasn't for the providence of God I mean I had I mean I had all the Demeanor, all the heart and way I spoke, I was, I mean, I was a Farrakhan believer in for real. So, most definitely, I was woke before I knew what they call woke. Mm -hmm.
1: (laughs) Mm -hmm.
2: So, yes, most definitely.
1: So, and I like, I know that our our show is um, on, you know, Black discipleship, but there's so much here. Um, And so, we will, you know, if you're watching, we will, you know, get there. But I'm I yeah I have so many questions um what do you think brought you out of this more afrocentric you know way of thinking or ideology um to help heal some of the racial trauma that you experienced
2: great question um, I get that question a lot people say man you got an amazing story and w- how did you get to where you are? And when people hear me preach and they say, grace comes out of you, I would tell you guys in the audience, um, when I had that divorce, man, I was an angry, fatherless of two, fatherless myself, black guy. And I had a lot of blame, white people, friend of the court, ex-wife, I had a lot of stuff that was in me, and I talk about this a lot. Um, this will probably be my first book. People say, when you can going to write a book, it'll probably be what called The Severe Mercy of God and His Providence because um, the divorce actually where I was a Christian after the divorce, before the divorce, but it was during the divorce where for the first time where I saw my sin and pride, self-righteousness, everything. But I mean, I really saw my sin. And I told people I had like a three-year dark night of the soul where all I could do in my prayer time was say, have mercy on me, O Lord. I felt the weight of my sinfulness like I had never felt before. And and it was all the work of God when I look back on it. And I must have wrote my ex-wife, I, Thousand letters apologize. I mean, I saw sin in every wink. I mean, every wrinkle on my face. It was just like I was conscious of what the New Testament authors talk about as sin. And I didn't always um, know that. And, and, and I'm here to tell you um, uh, it really, uh, it really, uh, Lord used that time in my life. And so, therefore, I. Uh, it was, it was me seeing my sin. It was me really understanding what I say in Romans 3.23. I, I, I knew that mentally, I would have given you the answer if you would asked me, but I experienced that um, by the grace of God, that what it means to be a sinner standing before the holy and righteous God. And when I felt and got the, the sense of God's forgiveness and mercy in my life, And that I was saved by grace and not with any work of myself. Man, I could love anybody. I would say this in the Grand Rapids all the time when I would preach. I said, I can almost love the devil, but I will not. (laughs) (laughs) I was so overcome by God's grace and therefore loving those who had wounded me and hurt me. Monique, to be totally honest with you, it was not as difficult at all. It was an overflow. I don't want to start crying, but it was an overflow of understanding the grace of God. And that is where the bitterness in my heart towards whites and everyone else, people who had hurt me, was totally, I was able to forgive and move on and move towards reconciliation in all things.
1: Do you think that that's part of what's missing in our current race conversation? Most the acknowledgement of my own sin.
2: Yes, most definitely. I, and that's my—that's been a part of what I'm trying to do at Urban Hope. It's the messes of the cross has been so downsized, and so it makes seems like that Jesus is just making up something that's very difficult for us to to get across. Well, if you pull Jesus out of it, there ain't no answers to this, man. I tell folks, pull Jesus out of it and just go to another civil war then, because that's all you're going to (laughs) get. If you don't understand this Jesus component of this racial talk in any culture, how could any group of people move on? How can the Christian Ukrainians move forward with what the Russians have done to them in the last year? If you pull Jesus out of that, Then that war will never end. It will never be solved. Only Jesus is the answer to that. And and how people can think they can solve these kinds of atrocities that have been done through ethnic groups over the years—they gotta be crazy. There is no way the Hutus and and all the different groups are gonna forgive each other. On what? What are we gonna forgive you for? No, man. I'm a Crip. Your blood. I'm gonna kill you till the last Crip is dead. That's all you're going to get. You can't get anything out of that unless we truly understand who this person really was who died on that cross. And I tell people I knew about him. I did. But Monique and Kevin, there was a moment in my life where I actually met him. And when I met him, oh, my goodness, man. Mm. Forgiveness. Oh, my hand. And this is what I think Paul is trying to say in Ephesians 4:31 when he says, Get rid of all anger and malice and, and anger and the Greek word, Pycrea, from among you. And I remember that was my first sermon that I preached at this white church where I was for 10 years in Grand Rapids. And the Lord had me focus on the Greek word, Pycrea. And I like what uh, one um, Aristotle said of that word, because it was a common word in that Greek culture. He says, it was a person who refused to be reconciled and i'll never forget that was my first sermon in front of this church on a sunday morning three services and i remember the lord had impressed upon me to tell all these racial stories and the pastor had assigned me that text not knowing my background and my history because i kind of hid it a little bit i didn't i didn't tell him all these racial stories i hid it for that sermon and i stood three services and I told everything I just told you and much more. And they knew the companies. I named the companies. And I was crying. I'm from Selma. And they were already enamored with me being from Selma. It's like, well, this kid's from Selma. And he's got these stories. And this is in Grand Rapids. Like, what in the world is going on here? This didn't happen in Selma. This happened down the corner. And this is in Grand Rapids, uh-huh. Michigan. And this is in the north. They had people all over the place like this. And, and I stopped in the sermon. I did it three times. So I said, let me ask a question to the audience: What happened to me that I could be filled up with this bitterness that Paul tells the Ephesians church to get rid of, so that I can now do verse thirty-two, which basically gives you the answer: Forgiving those as in Christ god has forgiven you and uh i said i met that person on that cross i had heard it people talked about it but i finally met him and that is the only way that i said i can stand here as a black guy from sardis alabama and preach to a, at time almost a white audience with tears ran down my face and said i am now your brother and I'm like Joseph, hmm. I'm like, hugged and reconciled to you, and that really was the beginning of my ministry in many ways,
0: man um I'm just gonna let you know i mean to our audience to um to the flesh to the unbeliever that doesn't make sense it doesn't right you know? um but that is what we preach right we we've experienced that we've um Everybody doesn't have necessarily your testimony, but I know in my own life if it wasn't for the grace of God, it wasn't for that perspective of who God is and who we are that I would not have the disposition that I have towards this topic and and people who don't look like us and have you no know, a certain history, you know. It mm-hmm. is the the cross that 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 gets us there, you know. <laughs> And I guess my question to you is, why does that seem to be missing from the church?
2: Um, I think I mean, you, you guys know the answer to this. I think uh, I think we've made the gospel in many ways, academia, academic ex- exercise, <laughs> um, we've taken. The, the foolishness out of it, and try to become wise by those in whom we want to be liked by. Um, like you just said, it doesn't make sense. And the gospel is foolish to those who are perishing. That that my story doesn't make sense to a natural person, you know. And that's what how people usually respond to it when they hear it. But when they but when they they hear it, but when they see it and think about it and perceive it, it points to a greater reality that transcends, which is what the gospel is. The gospel is something that transcends what we humans could come up with. No one would have come up with a story of the gospel. We are all self-made captives of our own ship. Work my way up, that's what religion is. Let me get to God by my own strength, by my own education, by my own something. And But a gospel that comes down to the humble, to the broken, to the despised, to those who cannot save themselves it totally goes against all natural means of understanding it and so and so therefore typically the people who are talking about race that's how they're coming at it there's got to be another way of fixing this other than that man named Jesus <laughs> pay me give me my dues <laughs> Like the prodigal son, it's got to be a better way than talking about this guy on the cross. I get it. That's how I was like, Jesus, that's the answer? That's what you I don't even know if I ain't really believing in him. I'm like, come on, man, give it, man, man, man. man. Like I said, man, miss me on that, man. <laughs> <laughs> can tell me that, okie dokie. What are you talking about? So Jesus, and then you told the white man that white man, Jesus, man, oh, no, man, so you brainwashed. I yep. get it. That it doesn't make sense. But then when you watch and you study where true reconciliation has been exemplified, you will always find that in the common denominator of people where that is taking place, here again, there's that man named Jesus is in the middle of it. Mm. That's the catch. Mm-hmm. When you find that ex-wife that has forgiven her ex-husband, when he did everything to tear her down, and she looks him in, in the eye and say, I forgive you. You'll find that Jesus in play. Mm. That's all I've ever seen. It's always that Jesus, the one that, 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 and so what you have in this conversation is people writing books. I see this all the time. They're writing They're writing books. Yeah, yeah, I know we're Christians. We're all Christians here who believe in Jesus, but it has got to be more.
1: <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. I call it the Jesus plus yeah. gospel.
2: <laughs> so, and even though the telescope that just came out, the new one, say, look at all these galaxies blowing people's minds. Even the scientists are on that. Scientists are pulling off their glasses, going, "Man, I can't even see." Stephen Wonder, what's going on up there? <laughs> and, and they say well, we can see all that, and Jesus made all that. But then we say, "But it's got to be more than Him." Mm-hmm. Even uh-huh. the galaxies and the stars and the moon. There's got to be something more to fix brokenness and sinfulness and, and, and inequality and justice and among human people than Jesus himself. And here comes CRT, here comes BOM, here comes all of these isms trying to say that I answered for you and we all know you couldn't have paid me enough money to take out the pain that I had in my heart towards people, white
1: people. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That was
2: that was not an amount of money. And that's why I see blacks and man, you're looking for a paycheck. Can I give you a little heads up, man? If Bill Gates came and said, would a billion dollars help you with your race? me, <laughs> For a guy who looks like me, the truth of the matter, it would never will. Because mm-hmm. that's, it's a spiritual malady that needs to be addressed by a spiritual reality called Jesus dying on the cross. And, and I just think, and so this is what happened. I mean, when I finally caught that, guys, it literally pulled me out of racial conversations all the time. And I would tell people, this is when I started to go on mission with Jesus. And that's really how Urban Hope got birthed. And I came to the front lines of talking about discipleship because I spent a lot of my time trying to fix racism. Mm.
1: And I- Wait, I'm gonna need you. To, I'm gonna need you to make make a, a a bit of a connection for me because I do want to know. Like, and I, you know, me and Kevin together, he, we want to know like how did you get to doing ministry in the inner city and planning the church there? But this discipleship component from race, we went from racial trauma to discipleship. What what was the connection for you in Like meeting Jesus and understanding, um, you know, what is offered through the gospel, the amount of forgiveness that's offered through the gospel and true reconciliation. Now, how does that bring you personally to the place of, man, I I have to start with discipleship?
2: Yeah, it's, um, you know, a story that I just told you guys, it's, it's been a fight in different People groups and different isms have tried to um, um, stronghold the story. He said, "Pastor Hurd, if you tell that story, bro, that's a that's a game changer. That that that'll fit right into reparations. <laughs> I thought, I thought, Man, we can use that story. We can show. And so, it's been a fight for me." In my journey into the story to to maintain the story in a redemptive narrative that pointed back to jesus and not to me back to um that i am what i am who i am by the grace of god and and when i first got to the church that i told you about i shared the story it that story it it, it ushered me into all kinds of racial conversations and and i found myself in a few years there I talked about this on last Sunday at our church I, I came to a place in my racial journey and my tenure man I became hopeless again I was because I had different people speaking into me and, and people were trying to bring out the Malcolm X of me and, and regurgitate the pain that I experienced at the, those companies and and you we need to get people back and it was a lot I had a lot of forces coming at me and Satan was really fighting for the story not to be told from a God perspective, but more from a, how can we get, use the story to manipulate guilt in some, um, build platforms for others. And and while I was doing all of this, I did nothing to help bring the gospel really, because I was going to get rid of racism. And that was the number one thing that was causing the issues to facing the urban people. And so if I could just get rid of that, I thought this would fix this. And when I found it to be true, just getting on the front lines on the urban poor, it was, racism was not even a part of the ethos of the stories. It was just what we, the Bible calls, what Genesis three tells us, that something is wrong with the human heart. There's something Wow. we're mixed up. And I, and you can fix, let's say the white guy says, I'm sorry about racism, Pastor Hardy. But it didn't fix Taniqua. <laughs> it didn't mm-hmm. fix mm-hmm. Joe and his wanting to be what he was. And it didn't fix fatherlessness. It didn't fix work habits. It didn't fix all the things that I thought it would. And I caught myself like, I spent all my time reading Every racial book, I'm not going to my library, I show you guys all the racism books I got. And I'm just reading the books and what happened in slavery and what happened when the oceans trailed, the ocean pulled the Atlantic slave, how they threw blacks off the ships. I read that stuff and I get mad again. And I said, Lord help me for not getting mad. And I get mad again, because I go read it again. And then I come to church, I don't want to do my right to You I was going through a roller coaster. And then I got to preach a sermon. I just read about y'all throwing my ancestors off the ship. <laughs> and I tell this story. Kevin heard me use this. I says, I started reading on everything that happened to Black people in the history. Monique, I only got worse. And I'll never forget, in my fighting my way back to the cross, I remember mean, the Lord just person on me. And I say this to people all the time. If you're gonna go back in history, which a lot of people are doing right now, seeing what all the things have been done to black people, and I'm not not I am a, I know a lot of stuff has happened to my people as African American people. I mean, I lived in the stars, my mom, and dad, and I'm experienced it. But I never forget the Lord reminding me, and there should be a book for somebody. If you're gonna go in the past, I remember the Lord putting it on my heart, make sure while you're going back yonder, that's my mama's language, stop by Old (laughs) Oh, Just stop by Old Galgotha in Jerusalem (laughs) and make sure if you're gonna go back in the past and just sit there and meditate on that before you make your way on back down yonder on all the history of atrocities that have happened, make sure you stop and meditate at Galgotha's hill outside Jerusalem so that you get a perspective Mm -hmm. on who died there. Because he's the only answer, why are you going back? Because I say if you go past you don't stop there, you may not get back. (laughs) Mm
0: -hmm.
2: And some people I've seen have gone back there, and we see them on the news, we see them on the podcast, and they can't make their way back because they didn't stop by Golgotha. They didn't Mm -hmm. stop by the place of the skull. They didn't yeah. I, mm-hmm. understand what had taken place there. And now they're mad about what happened 2,000 years ago in Africa about, they're mad about the new movie out now. I <laughs> want to see who, who kidnapped who here. <laughs> 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 the new yeah. King movie movie <laughs> Yeah. And I used yeah. to be the same person. And I had a friend of mine tell me, Elton, don't be too hard on them. And he said, I said, yeah, that used to be me. I was mad about everything. You're right. And so if God don't pull back your eyes, you can't see it.
0: Mm. So,
1: yeah. mm-hmm. That's I, one. of No, no, Sorry, no, go ahead. No, go ahead. Cause
0: I was going to shift a little bit. So go ahead with your question.
1: I was, I was just going to say, um, not even, you know, a question, but just what stuck out from all that you just said is the reality that we can't do this without Jesus. Yeah. There is, and you know, we we talk about it, but the idea of true reconciliation, we can't have true reconciliation without Jesus. There is no true unity without Jesus. Um, and when you when you looking back over the sins of somebody else, make sure you stop by, you know, <laughs> make sure you stop by Yeah, and, you know, and and visit what you also have been forgiven yeah. from. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I want to
2: answer your question before Kevin puts this the other question about why we're not hearing this. I make the argument that what has happened over the last 10 years, especially I think in some of the worlds that we run in, in the reform worlds, for the most part, is that we have put up novices in matters of race. Here's what I mean. Uh, When I finally understood what God was doing with my life, I was not a 20-something year old. I was now a 40 something year old black man and now through the grace of God by his providence I could see Romans 8:28 and I tell people that's a verse but it's a one of those verses that you got to experience with life you can't see what God is doing in your life at 15, 20, 25, it takes years. And sometimes you could be like just man, God knew what he was doing all along. And so mm-hmm. what we have done, we've put up academia, proudness people who can read a book, but they can't speak about this gospel of forgiveness and reconciliation because they haven't experienced it. And so when you go to conferences, that's all you get in is what you get in their anger. You get in their, their hatred. They're still in the process. And so I tell people, find people, find Dr. Perkins, find people who've taken the bullet, who've been bitten by that spirit, but they can say, man, it's Jesus. Mm -hmm. They're going to lead you to the cross. And I hear podcasts, I watch people and they, all they're telling me is the problem, but they can't lead me to the place, to the person on the cross. So I tell, I told all my reform brothers, why are you putting a 28-year-old up there to talk about something that caused a civil war? It's been a part of the greatest atrocity in our country. What can that 28-year-old talk to you about when it comes to about forgiving the one? He can't even forgive his ex-wife yet. He ain't even forgiven his wife. Mm-hmm. What, is he gonna, what is he gonna talk about something that caused a civil war? Do you understand yeah. the magnitude of what we're talking about? And you yeah. oh, because he can bring in a crowd. Oh, gotcha. Understand. <laughs> and, yeah. and so you've had a lot of these people on platforms because everyone has a platform now. All you gotta do is get a camera and put it on podcasts. And so therefore, but they don't have they don't have that Joseph story.
0: Mm, that's mm. that's a if good trans- ask
2: Joseph Early on in his life. Joseph, where you were at? in forgiving your brothers early in the scene when he was in the in the prison. Joseph, would have went? Brothers, who? <laughs>
0: <laughs> right? Yep, yep. not there yet. Yeah, and I'm, I'm glad you went there, Alton. Because before we before we wrap this up, I really want you to talk about coming out of Egypt, right? You you that's kind of the motto for your church and and, uh, and what you do in discipleship and your ministry. You talk about the black community coming out of Egypt but differently than the traditional Black yeah. story of the Black people coming out of Egypt. Explain, yeah, it's not a
1: liberation theology. Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh.
0: Ex- explain what you mean by we, us coming out of Egypt or uh-huh. the inner city of poor coming out of Egypt.
2: Yeah, you know, people come to our church, I'm gonna make this quick. They say, man, what kind of vision is that? And I often tell people, sit with us and you'll catch it. It's it's um, you. And so um, the coming out of Egypt into the promised land, you all know, this is the overarching storyline of the Bible. Born in sin. Ephesians 2. God comes by his grace to deliver us into the marvelous light of his son, Jesus Christ, which I call the promised land. Jesus is the promised land. He is the true rest. Everything ends and starts with him. But the Egypt, the way I describe Egypt, and this took God helping me do work in the inner city for a number of years. I was a CCDA addict. If there's a certain thing as a drug addict, I was a CCDA addict. <laughs> John Perkins, and so I think if anyone has tried to bring solutions to the inner city, Pastor Hardy has tried, and so. When I describe Egypt, you have to know history. You have to know African-American history. You have to know our legacy in in, in order to be able to catch it. And Monique, me and you and Kevin, we know this. And in my trying to address inner city poverty, I kept running up against certain isms that I wasn't quite prepared for. Like, why would you want to get married? I mean, I, I can't tell me times sitting in women's houses and projects and Grand Rapids and whatever, man, I can't get married. Why? I'm gonna lose all my benefits. What do you mean your benefits? <laughs> you know, get married, marry your father, your children, y'all living together, pastor. Uh-huh. I'm gonna cut off. Cut off from what? First of all, day housing and all the stuff from, but I still didn't get it. I'm a slow learner. I'm like, oh, I don't know. Maybe she's just making it up. Next one, same thing, and what I started to see, started to see was all of these entanglements with the government. Yep. And then it got me started reading. I wouldn't, I ain't know anything about no Thomas Shaw, but you start reading, asking the Lord to show you stuff, and this is when the internet was coming on strong. So I was an internet guru, but I wasn't on there playing around with. I was on there trying to figure out what's going on with the people. And I came to understand, historically, there's something that transpired in the African community, which I describe as coming back to Egypt, which we have moved that far from it. Big government. I call him the true pharaoh. (laughs) Mm. That's leading the people back to the handouts of big government, where you can't get married because you can't get free housing, section eight. You can't really work a job because let us take care of you. And you see it everywhere. And Pharaoh yeah. still kills our boys. All you got to do is look at the news in every inner city from Compton to Fairfield to Birmingham to Jacksonville to New York. Pharaoh has never moved his edict, he's going to kill the boys. Mm. He's gonna kill the boys, and he tells you why. Because the boys will grow up to become men, and Pharaoh says, and they will fight with my enemies and leave and go to worship Yahweh. And I can't have that. So I always destabilize their communities by always killing off their boys, who will become men and husbands. And so Egypt represents the bondage to the federal government, and you guys have been talking about it. We. Kevin did, a, y'all did an excellent job with that. African Americans don't look to the true God who's the true government. We're looking to the government of this world.
0: Yeah, and, 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 and to, to, to make the analogy, you're talking about the nation of, of, of Israel being led out of Egypt by Moses, right? Yes. And they decide it would be better for them to go back to Pharaoh
2: with a leader. Because they
0: had they had sustenance there, right? Yes. They were taken mm-hmm. care of there. And so yes. they would rather go back to be in bondage and be taken care of than to stay with Moses and who was, you know, an old testament representative of Christ, right? Yes. And so instead of the freedom of Christ and staying with God and living in God's provision, they would rather be in bondage because yes. they were receiving the handouts and being taken care of, right? Yes. And yes. so what you're saying is that the black Parts of the black community have chosen to stay in Egypt. Yes. Because they are taken care of. Yes. And I mean,
2: this is so, I mean, I can talk about this so much. I mean, I come in off on ramps, but when God showed me numbers 14, people said, let us choose a leader. And I asked myself, why don't you just go back on your own? Choose a leader. So there's always leadership, there are always people out there who will either push you to the promised land which is what our church is and there are always other people who will always lead you back to the bondage of each other and uh-huh. they say let us choose a leader i'm like lord why are you putting it in the bible and then romans 15:4 4 say, all that has happened in the past was written for you an example i'm trying to instruct you the ways of the kingdom <laughs> he's right there you know people will always lead you back hey vote for me I'll give you a few more rations. And then I asked the Lord, but what's in Egypt that you would want to go back where Pharaoh kills your boys, all you do is make brick and straw for him. There is no life. There is no best life, as Joe Osteen would say, best life now. You don't live out your purpose. You don't do nothing but make brick and straw for his kingdom. What's, but what's in Egypt that's so alluring, that's so powerful, that's so gravitating that you would want to go back to Egypt? Numbers 11, verse 4. So now the rabble among you begin to grumble, And they said to one another, it will be, let us go back to Egypt." it says, because when the Lord showed me this, man, I said, my goodness, we remember the free stuff, or translation says, the stuff that costs us nothing, mm-hmm. free things, the onions and the watermelons Pharaoh gave to us for free. And when you study and watch as Thomas Sowell and all the conservative think tankers, how they explain this, man, you have to be as blind as Stevie Wonder and Ray Charles combined not to see, as my friend Bob Woodson says, man, in the 60s, there was something that was insidious and demonic that came into the black community up until the end, we had the highest marriage, we worked, mm-hmm. we fought through Jim Crow, we graduated from Black colleges, created all kinds of businesses, and now since the 60s, it's almost like somebody took out the creative gene of Black people and took it and threw it down the road.
1: It's, it's you know, when when you're quoting Numbers 4 and... um or not numbers four, numbers eleven, and you know they're grumbling and wanting to go back and get the the stuff that cost them nothing. You know when we think about the stuff that cost us nothing, especially today, those things cost us our soul. Though you know when we think about um, the Hebrew people, th- those leeks and onions may have cost them nothing, except it cost them the true yes. freedom and relationship with God. That's why the Lord said, "Let my people go, so that they may worship me." But that was that, the whole and, that's, point. and that's the. Whole whole thing we're seeing right now the bondage that we are in when we look at um you know what people many black people are tied to in relation to abortion or their political party or you know whatever the ideology is whatever critical social theory they choose it is costing them true relationship with a holy god
2: yes yes Yes.
1: You know, um, when when you speak of, you know, leaving, leaving Pharaoh and leaving Egypt, I, I don't know if people really get that. That is the biblical way. That is that is the much harder way. It is much harder to get married and to stay married, to raise your children together in the precepts of the faith, to yes. get a job, to stay employed, yes. to live. I mean, you know, it's um. I think it's Ephesians four somewhere like toward the middle yeah. where it says, um, you know, may those who steal, still no longer, but do yeah. something with their hands so that they have something to share with others. Yeah. Yeah. That is the harder work. Cause sometimes I don't want to share with you. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I don't like I work hard. Now why do yeah. I got to share? But yeah. this is the harder work that I don't know. People, um, really grasp. It's easier and it's yes. more convenient to yes. do it the way that the culture, the government, the world, the demonic would tell me it's okay to do it. But yes. we are people of the book. We are people of faith. And so we live according to that lifestyle. Yes. But yet, oh, it, I we, like we're when preaching. you guys think
2: about this, who do you think the people are in our contemporary context that shows up in Numbers 14, verse 4? 4. Let, let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. And so I work in an inner city urban context. I would say, I would make the argument that it is the urban inner city context throughout America that is under the, 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 the stronghold of Pharaoh's policies, his, his edicts. And we see it each and every day in all of our inner cities. But who are those leaders? That mm. keep promising these poor African American communities <laughs> and luring them back to Egypt. I call them taskmasters. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. Who
2: are they? Are they educated? Are they sophisticated? Are they poor blacks? Are they PhD blacks? I think y'all get the point. I think you mm-hmm.
0: hell no, I'm not this all code. I'm just gonna say it. Yeah. It is yeah, go black, ahead. E- it's, it's black <laughs> elites in high positions of po- politics and academia and they work through black pastors in the church to push yes. yourself mm-hmm. home to the black community. And I'm just yep. going to be real with it. That's and what they it don't is.
1: live there. Yes. <laughs> Nowhere near. Nope. And white they liberals. The <laughs> they got police where they're at. Yep. yep.
0: Yep. They're not defunding the police in their neighborhood.
1: No. You nah. got that right. No. Nah. But I'm, I, I will throw in, just in case y'all there. didn't hear it, and white liberals. Yes. Because Bingo. white liberals with their compassionate hearts is selling us out to pharaoh quicker than pharaoh taking straw
2: Yep. tell y'all story uh about the white liberal so we were when we got here i bumped around at a few churches not going to name that church and and one of those white liberals professing to be a christian by the way um and i was saying what i was going to do with young black men and, and a lot of these young black men were attending their church. And when they were like little kids and stuff, they now a lot of them come to our church. But so we were meeting at one o'clock and you see how big I am. I mean, I'm not a small guy by any imagination, even though I'm a ain't nothing but a soft jelly bean, but you know, still I'm six four, you know, <laughs> gotta have some fear of just the size alone. But when you guess, when you believe in what you believe in, so church met at one, I'm outside about 1230, 12, 1210, 1215, talking to some of the elders of the church that we're renting the space from, Kevin and Monique. This white guy, it shows you the power of the stronghold in, the, in these Egyptian, Egypt communities, came up to me, put his finger on my nose and told me, he said, who do you think you are? Go back to your Yankee, Michigan City. These black boys who down here telling them that they're going to make it, they're going to get married, and that they're going to avoid all the prison and all that, that is not going to happen. They are not going to make it. They are not. They're, all they can do is be fed food, and that's what we do. And you're telling them that they got a dream, that there's a promised land for them, that they can become husbands and fathers and break the cycles. You go back to where you come from, Yankee. Call me a Yankee. Birmingham, mm. Fairfield, Alabama, mm-hmm. this happened to me. That goes in the book. Yeah. Yep. He, yeah. that church believes in abortion. They believe that black babies should be killed in the womb. And those elders stood up to me and said, we don't want you losing our space. And you got some idea that these kids are going to make it. Mm-hmm. And I had to go in to preach behind that, Kevin.
0: <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
1: My church had a war. There's there's something to banking on these these kids not making it, and that's a whole other show. Yes. But there is there there's there's a, a payoff. for them not making it. There's a payoff for continuing to preach abortion. There's a payoff for, you know, continuing to preach these liberal ideologies and things like that. It's not, I mean, can you imagine what would happen to the welfare system if people decided that they would stop having sex before they got married? If people decided that I'm going to actually marry the person that I have a child with. If people decided that I'm going to actually get up and go to work every day, as opposed to relying on the government. It would put these, um, li- I'll, I'll call it liberal, so we're not too too political. Even though I do want to say Democrat, um, but it would, it would put them out of it. out of out of business because there would not be people believing their rhetoric and ideology. And I'm not saying that the Republican Party is all that either. But when, if we're gonna look straight just at like ideology and you know, who's advocating for you to kill your kid? Who's advocating for you to get on welfare? Who's advocating for you to be involved in in, in governmental social policies that just keep you stagnant? Yeah. There, there's a payoff, though. There's yes, a payoff for them.
0: If, if you don't need me, you won't vote for me. I have to make it to where you need me so I can mm-hmm. stay in power. That's all that's it true. is. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and that's and, the free and, stuff. Yes. And you that have to, keep to you coming back to me. Yes, yep. and, you, and you have to um, make those who are saying, hey, you can make it. You can do it, right? You have to find a way to kind of push them out the picture. You have to make a way to, oh, that's an Uncle Tom, or oh, that's a sellout. Mm-hmm. And those who are helping to keep them in Egypt, helping to keep them on the plantation as the taskmasters, those are the ones who are propped up. Yes. Hey, hey listen to this guy. Listen to this yep. guy, right? And it's just—it's just a—it's just, a, it's just a, a, a cycle that you see. Is—is is how do you, how the people that are saying black people can do it, you can do it, you can be—they are totally dismissed, totally talked about, shunned, pushed out the way because you are a Yeah, uh-huh. you are a hindrance to what they want, which is to keep the black community poor, upset, angry. You know. And um, then they use it for their own benefit, you know, mm-hmm. and I, I, I've, I've loved your concept of coming out of Egypt because and that's what people need to realize when you're on the street. That's not necessarily what you're talking about. No, that's not what you're talking about. We know that's in the background. But you're talking about Jesus because, you know, Jesus is who transforms lives. You're yes. talking to you're talking to young men about what it means to be a man, what it means to be take care of your responsibilities. Yes. What does it mean to be a father? You're talking to women about, you know, the men they choose. You're talking to them yes. about what it means to be a mother. You, you try, you're talking about what it means to be married. You, yes. You're trying to make disciple them into a different mindset. Yes. Right. Yes. And, that, and that is what is needed. It it really is. And that's why I really appreciate urban hope because you are truly providing hope within the urban context, you know, and and preaching the gospel and all of its implications to bring about that change. So I just want to, I I appreciate you and I appreciate your ministry In my yes. hometown of Birmingham. So, <laughs>
2: thank you. <laughs>
1: and, yeah. and definitely having been there, like we, we sat down and, you know, we had a conversation with three of us, the, the four of us, because Krista was there too. Um, but that was a while ago. And now, having gone to your church on a Sunday and seeing you in action and, you know, not not to say that it was performative because it wasn't that at all. But to see your heart really in action for your people was amazing. Um And to, you know, talk with the people who are inside of your church. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I'm just like it, it's real. And there, yeah. you're in the grind day in and day out.
0: Yeah. yeah. Truly uplifting the community. Truly. Uh, yes. I mean, the college the college kids y'all have in there. The um, um urban hope development that you guys started, where you do you know the the financial literacy classes and the 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 work training and all that it is it is a complete holistic ministry within the community yes. and um, it's amazing that people would try to totally discredit that, right they don't I that's do not worry, what they want.
2: Know, <laughs> um, I think people would have been able to do so. If we were not so involved in the poor people as you guys just so mm-hmm. eloquently mm. just described. And they see me with the young black man. So they can say, but he doesn't sound like us. He's not saying what we would say, but you can't deny the work. You can't mm-hmm. deny and when you see me, you see one of us, you see us with a young fatherless black man trying to disciple him into who he is in the in the in the image of Christ. And so it's it, and so they, and that's that's been way of God really protecting me from some of what I would call the Uncle Tomness because they say, Man, when we see PA, he is on his game in trying mm-hmm. to uplift those who we would consider to be the least of these. And so, and God, and it was in God's providence, and then, like, you guys heard my story, all of this has really come out of my life. When I talk yeah. about the promised land and the image of God. I talk about not knowing that, not knowing that who I was in Christ and my identity and being the man that I am and being able to pastor a multi-church. Monique, we don't talk about multi-ethnic church. That is an outsource of the gospel. And I didn't set out to strategize to have white and black together, but God and his providence have, have brought that because I'd say to people, I God healed me of my self-loathing. He healed me of my image about myself. And so, and God is take, getting the glory from all that he's mm-hmm. doing through. the hope. We're in the inner city. You came there, you saw it. We have rich whites, middle-class white, poor whites, black, poor. And all of this is combined. People say, how you get all these young people? Man, I don't know. The grace of God, the gospel mm-hmm. of God, <laughs> the power of God. I don't know. I can't tell you how to go do this. It, but I do, here's what I do. I will tell you, I believe Jesus now. Mm. And I Amen. believe Jesus, he is who he says he is. Amen. And, I, and so that's how I answer those questions. I don't I don't add on to Jesus no more, and I don't take it away from him.
1: <laughs> Pastor, um I know we had time and I know you have places to go and we got something else to do too. But can you briefly sit because this whole conversation, y'all, this conversation was not planned to happen this way. Um, <laughs> no, but since it wasn't that. planned to happen this way, we actually wanted to talk about Urban Hope and let people know exactly what you're doing. Can you um, just really briefly tell us tell us about Urban? I'm like Kevin and I are talking about it, you know, from that outsider's knowledge, but as as the founder, as you know, the one who's in it day in and day out, just tell people what is Urban Help.
2: Who are? Or, or the Thank Urban you, Help. Monique. Um, yeah, this is it's a good segue to, for close. Um, I started off by sharing my story of of in God's providence, and I and I always go back to God. Um, God allows the good and, and the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. Um, my early life in Sardis, I, wish I didn't ask for, all of those racial storylines, the fatherlessness, the poverty, um, the homelessness in high school, just man, my life was just a lot of just loneliness, stuttering, just um, lack of image in the image of God, didn't know any of what that meant. And now at 56, and so God doesn't waste any pain. If anyone's listening to this, you may not understand it at 25, but I'm here to tell you, God doesn't waste any of it. And so what is God doing now with all of that storyline in the background? Well, he brought me here to Birmingham 10 years ago, and part of my lifelong pursuit secretly in my prayer time is racial healing. But I know God's not going to er eradicate the sin of racism. That's not what I'm asking God to do. But I have asked God, and he's assigned to me, I believe. That's one of the reasons why I believe he brought me here to Birmingham for a, a display of his glory as it relates to racial harmony, gospel clarity that comes by way of grace which is what I believe comes out of Ephesians 1 through 11. And now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known. The manifold wisdom of God, I explained it so well last Sunday. People said, man, we finally get it. It's what I call a gospel movement, Monique. And I think you and Kevin's a part of this. That's why I wanted to come do this show where I call the great conservative people, theologically who hold to that truth of the gospel that we are saved not by our own doing. We have been saved by grace through faith. It has been a work of God's divine providence to save Monique, Kevin Briggins, and Alton Hardy. And many of our friends that grew up with us, we don't know why, we can't answer why God, I don't know. I just know I've been saved by grace. And I'm. for me, Urban Hope is a combination of that, in the urban poor, like Fairfield to start. And I say to start because it's spreading. And then God in his grace with the Jew and Gentile, we know there's been a racial divide in our country like we have never seen. And God told me two things. I'm gonna bring the conservative Christians into a gospel work among the urban poor. And for you Alton, it would be called the wisdom of God, reflecting back to the Jew and Gentile. And so with that being said, I've been here 10 years. God has provided a $2 million building, paid for, no debt. We bought a building next door, paid off. In the process of putting loss, that will cost $1.5 million, whatever, there will be a 10,000 square feet grocery store, the first of its kind, in Fairfield, with many more to come. Guess who paid by who? What God said, my conservative Christian friends. And among who? Among the urban poor people, as God told me. And we got a house across the street from us, house set empty for 14 years. It's a house for Miles College girls. It will be in the house of about 10 girls. It's 5,000 square feet. We bought that, pay for it, no debt. We're in the process of buying another building that will house our youth, our youth in Fairfield that will come all over the west Side of Birmingham. And you say, what is God doing? He's doing what the gospel does. In the manifold, wisdom of God should be made known. God's making his power of the gospel known in racial healing. And it took me a long time, Kevin and Monique, to understand God, why did you bring me back south and why Birmingham? Because he says that's where Satan thought he owned racial dialogue. But I'm about to show him that my gospel should not be frustrated. And God is making his power of the gospel known through his grace alone, through faith alone. (laughs) It's all to the glory of God. And so you say, how is all of this happening with a little small PCA church that started 10 years ago? That's what God is doing. And it's got all of Fairfield, all of Birmingham, all over. People say, how in the world is that little small church that is all coming about? And it's not to me. It's, they hear the race story and they say, well, how are you forgiven?" Everything comes back to Jesus. And it's got whites coming from all of my white brothers and sisters are coming from the left, from the right, from the north to the south. And we believe that Fairfield is starting ground. We believe the Lord wants to do this throughout Birmingham to bring what I've been asking the Lord to bring a spiritual healing, a commerce, a housing healing all done by one people group called the church. Amen. Amen. That's what the text says. Through the church, the manifold, not the government, not federal, not the mayors, not the legislators, all of that, but the people of God should now make it known who God is in all of his power. That's what God is doing.
0: Every time me and Alton talk, I go tell my wife we move back to Birmingham. Just <laughs> every time, every time. She's like, you talk, you've been talking to Alton like, yes, yes. Yeah,
2: the Lord have need of y'all. You must come back to Samaria. <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh, man, man. But no, I just said it to say, man, I love um, your heart. I love what you're doing. I love the mission. It is exactly what I believe the church has been called to do and exactly how you're doing it. Um, you're bringing people together from all different demographics. All Christians are coming together for a common cause. Yeah. And it's not, it's not just monetarily. It is ultimately to preach and to share the gospel where is, is lacking. It, it really is, you know, and to help people come out of bondage, um, out of Egypt spiritually, yes. Physically and you know emotionally, the trauma, the healing of the trauma, all these things. The gospel is the yes. answer to the solution. Yes. yes. And so, yeah. So, um, man, I appreciate you and, dude, we could we can go on for another couple of hours, but
1: we don't have we, to. We, yeah,
0: we, I, we got I, I this. this got to be part you. one. We got to come back. Yeah, one.
1: we never even got to the questions. No, we did. <laughs> I was thinking about that, Monique. <laughs> we got to please tell us about yourself.
2: That was yeah. question one, that was it. and that's what yeah. we.
1: <laughs> we still on question one.
2: <laughs> I have seen some of y'all shows. but y'all done part two, part three. So we just yeah, have to yeah. yeah. We got to come feet. back, man.
0: Yeah, you you yeah. got to come part, back and um, and and let's dive deep into discipleship within the urban context. All right. I yeah. feel
1: like maybe I should fly out to Birmingham, and then Kevin, you just drive up, and we do it in person.
0: Let's do
2: it. Yeah,
1: because we can saying. actually
2: get a guy to film what's going what's going on, then you can show your people, hey. I'm just this, saying. We're not just making this up. <laughs> this
0: this I'm, might I'm be more you. than yes. a podcast episode. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking a little <laughs> small documentary going on
2: right now.
1: You ain't said nothing but a word. We can do this.
2: Yes. Oh, man. And I would love I'm for in. you guys to do it, because I think of what y'all been talking about, it is a easy... It is what you guys are trying to say to your audience in the gospel, it's just how this stuff gets played out.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: I'm not griping no more. Yeah. I'm not on Facebook throwing my jabs at white people. I've done that enough. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Jesus took that out of me. And imagine if could we do this throughout all over urban America?
1: Mm. Yes. That, the narrative.
2: That, this is why I did the podcast. That is what Satan is fighting.
1: Mm.
2: Yes. Because see, he knows that if your conservative people hear this, they say, why can't we find our altars where we're at?
0: <laughs> yeah. And it's,
2: he knows that. Yep. That is what he's fighting for. He don't want this to get out there because it's like, man, they're going to come off feeling guilty, feeling like, well, I'm racist and all of that. No, for such a time as this. This is what God is asking for. You want to get rid of racial woundedness that you've been crying about? This is what, because this is what came out, the manifold wisdom of God is what has come out of what I told you guys early on. That is what Mm. God led me to. Mm. He took me back to the text, said, look, Jew and Gentile, ancient years of hatred and hostility,
1: Mm -hmm. but
2: now through the church, them two being one, Partakers of the same family of Jesus Christ, Paul says, all by grace. And I told, I said this on Sunday. If you come to verse ten, and you are not weeping with overwhelming grace, then you won't get verse ten. Mm-hmm. Now through the church, church are grace people. How you get in here, grace? How you get in here, grace? How Amen. you get off the of drugs, grace? How did you get off of cocaine, grace? <laughs> Well,
1: yes, when
2: you got that, you now if you come in, man, you hurt me. You ain't get grace yet.
0: <laughs> yep. Yep.
2: There's man. that part. You yeah. gotta legal but you didn't get the gospel of grace. You come in judging people, man. You finally hurt me. But if you come in, man, what all have I've done, all of what mm. you've done, mm. who who gets to judge who? Mm. Why well, was it go around telling my white brothers, man, you sinful? God, said, how dare you? You want me to pull back your covers? Mm. You that Christians. Mm. That's what manifold is. It's a movement of people from all over who know that we are who we are, but nothing but nothing but the grace of God.
0: Amen. 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 Well, bro, we have got to let you go. I know you got another meeting to get to. Yes. Um. And so, but no, this this has been great. We're gonna do it again. It's definitely gonna be a part two for everybody who's listening. Yes. Um. And so, yeah, man, I just want to thank you for coming on. Okay.
2: Appreciate thank it. you so much. Thank you guys. Appreciate yep.
1: it. Talk again. See you guys. Again. All right. Appreciate it. Take care, guys. All right, everybody. Now we will be doing a part two. Um, Kevin, that was so good. My goodness gracious. Um. Yeah. I'm trying to figure out how we ending this today Um, (laughs) my goodness just thank thank you so much for being a part of Offcode for um, yeah walking with us even as we are bringing out the the things within you know our community that may or may not you know be discussed so with that Kevin just awesome job you put this together so great job thank you so much Um, and we'll see you guys in two weeks Bye.